0: And if you would, open with me in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. Uh, This morning, we are going to open up the very beginning of the longest of the minor prophets. And uh, we are going to spend... uh Essentially right up until Christmas, the way I have it planned out in this book, and that is entirely appropriate. Zechariah, more than any other place in the Minor Prophets, makes the people ready for a coming Messiah. He's going to intentionally build on everything that's come before, and he's going to reveal new details, new depth to those promises that God has made. He's going to essentially take the people from past to present to distant future And Zechariah is going to center around this theme that God remembers, that Yahweh remembers every promise that he has ever made to his people, and that he will prove to be perfectly faithful to those promises. So if you're not there already, find your way. Zechariah chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, which is our text for today. Zechariah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is what God's word says. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, as I commanded my servants the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Let's pray. Lord, as we open up another one of the Minor Prophets to a place that we are not necessarily familiar with in our Bibles, we ask that you would open our eyes. Lord, as we do every week, we ask that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word, not wonderful thoughts from a sermon, not wonderful illustrations that are poignant. Lord, open our eyes so that we can see universal, timeless truth from the God of truth. And Lord, I pray that as you open our darkened eyes, as you soften our cold hearts, that you would draw us not only to understanding but to obedience. Lord, through the power of your Spirit, help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And Lord, I pray that everything that we do for this morning, whether we sing, whether we serve, whether we give or whether we study, that it's done as an act of worship and surrender to you. You are the great God of our salvation and worthy of all of our praise. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So like I said, we're on the 11th out of 12 minor prophets. And uh, by this time, pretty sure that most of you could tell me the four major themes, even if they weren't on the banners behind me. Uh, Not cheating. It's just to help. But I'm sure most of you could get there. You could tell me about the holiness and the sovereignty and the justice and the mercy of God. And that's good I'm sure that by now a few of you, even maybe against your wishes or against your better judgment, would be able to tell me that that slide with the yellow and blue parts talks about northern and southern kingdom. You'd be able to tell me something about the national history of the life of Israel. Maybe you're able to slot in some of those specific problems and promises, and that is also very, very good. Uh, but I'm also aware that by prophet 11 out of 12, 11 months into our study, there might be some fatigue setting in. Uh, Repetition might be the key to learning, but repetition is not necessarily the key to generating excitement in a sermon. Um, And I understand that. Uh, Hopefully, every minor prophet has unfolded a little bit differently. Hopefully, you've been able to see the distinction and kind of the the different pointed facets that they bring, the different things that they highlight. Um, But I understand that we've covered a lot of familiar ground. And as we open up Zechariah, what we're going to find is that it is very, very complementary with what has come before. Uh, When he warns, It is for familiar sins. When he promises, it is based on familiar promises, but uh, take heart. Uh, In this, like I said, the longest of the minor prophets, uh, he builds a familiar house in an entirely unique way. Zechariah, more than any of the other minor prophets, develops things uh, to a visual degree, to a depth of understanding uh, that has not been seen before him. So, what we're going to do is we open this up today, we're going to look at the setting first. We're going to look at the context, the who, the when, the why of the book so that we can have kind of that foundational understanding. The first thing we're going to do, like I said, open up the setting like we always do at the beginning of these new books. After that, we're going to very, very briefly cover what we're going to call the strategy. Uh, Zechariah introduces some difficult things, and we're going to have to have some consistent ground rules for how we deal with difficult passages. And then after that, we're going to look at the summary sermon, those first six verses that Zechariah preaches, that initial opening sermon to the people that really provide the foundation for the rest of the book. So let's jump into the setting, and we're going to ask the first question, which is what we always do, and that is who? Who wrote it, and who did he write to? And chapter 1, verse 1 gives us that information. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah the son of berechiah the son of edo now there's some information in that sentence that helps us understand when and we will certainly come back to that but for now see that the word of the lord came to a man named zechariah a very very familiar name over 25 guys in your old testament named zechariah and the name is a wonderful name it means yahweh remembers he gives his name and really that name gives the theme to the whole book the lord remembers is what his name means We're also told that Zechariah is a prophet, and not only a prophet, but we're told that he's the son of Berechiah and the son of Edo, which doesn't mean much to us if we're just looking at this passage. But if we were to put this together with uh, what we read in Ezra and Nehemiah, what we find out is that this is a priestly family. Zechariah is not only a prophet, Zechariah is a member of the priesthood. And that is going to make a, lot of, uh, make a lot of sense, because as his prophecy unfolds, we see the temple become a, a very, very primary and essential part of what he talks about. So, Zechariah, prophet, priest, but who does he write to? Well, as it turns out, he writes to very much the same audience that we just came through when we were looking at Haggai. We're going to see very, very familiar names, very, very familiar people. Zerubbabel is still the governor. Joshua is still the high priest. But more than that, remember that he's writing to a people that have just begun then to rebuild the temple of the Lord. He's talking to a people that are in physical distress. He's talking to a people that are in spiritual distress. He's talking to a people who know what it's like to begin well and then to fade into disobedience. He's talking to a people that are prone to discouragement, prone to falling back into outward obedience. And so that's kind of the audience that he's writing to in general. And again, much like Haggai, Zechariah is very specific when it comes to the when. Uh, Lots of the minor prophets, we can kind of get a general idea of when they wrote. Haggai and Zechariah, like this is the specific day that it happened. And if you look in your bulletins, you see this little half sheet. On one side of there is the broad chronology of all the minor prophets. It kind of helps you slot the books into the major timeline of God's covenant people, Israel. And then on the back of that... There's a little bit of a a highlighted section that deals with from that time of captivity in Babylon to the restoration. Uh, Remember that in 586, Babylon comes in and does that final conquering of Jerusalem. The temple is done away with, completely destroyed. The city, by and large, completely destroyed. No one and nothing of any value is left in the ruined Jerusalem, and it lies in ruins for 50 years while the people remain in exile in Babylon. Eventually, the Babylonian Empire fades. The Persian Empire comes to prominence. Cyrus the Great makes that decree that all of the people within his empire are free to return to their homeland. And specifically, when it comes to the Jewish people, he says, not only go home, but go home and build your temple. He gives them back the things that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from them decades earlier. And so about 50,000 people return to Jerusalem with the intent to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple, and they make a good start of it. They build the altar. They build the foundation. They begin to offer sacrifices again. But then there's pressure. There's pressure from their neighbors, from the surrounding peoples, to stop the work. There are threats of violence. There are appeals back to the emperor of the empire to stop the work. And so the work stalls. And for 15 years, nothing is done. And you remember that that's where Haggai picks up. After a started temple... But then, a people who had come to the place where they said, You know, the time is just not right to finish the, the Lord's house, Haggai spoke to them and he said, It's time to get up and get to work again. And Haggai was able to date that first message, the first day of the sixth month, the second year of Darius' reign. So Haggai gives his first message late August of 520 BC. Three weeks later, the people start building. Haggai gives a second message. It says, Be strong, it says, Don't despair. And we're told the date of that one, and that comes uh, in late October of that same year. And then we read that Haggai gave kind of two more messages. He gave a message challenging the people in their sin, and he gave a message specifically to Zerubbabel, and that happened in December of that same year. Well, the reason I remind you of those things in Haggai is because between Haggai's second and third message is when Zechariah begins to minister. So there's a significant amount of overlap there, and we're told that Zechariah begins his ministry in the eighth month of that second year of Darius, and that eighth month covers parts of October and November on our calendar. In other words, right now, this is the exact time of year when Zechariah would have been prophesying. So 2,542 years ago, maybe this week, but certainly this month, Zechariah opens his mouth and begins to give the word of the Lord to these people. So we'll date some other parts of the book as we go through, but that's the date for this initial section. But then we have to ask, why? Why does Zechariah write? Especially since God already had a prophet among the people. If God gave the people Haggai and called them back to work, why does Zechariah write at the same time? Well, like all of the prophets, you could say that he writes, that he speaks, because God commands him to. God gives his word to his prophets to speak to his people. Why does he write? He writes, again, with the same themes of the rest of the minor prophets. He writes to remind the people of God's holiness. He writes to warn them about their sin. He writes to give them promises about restoration and justice and mercy. But Zechariah writes with a very specific intention. Haggai said, you need to obey and start building the temple again. And the people do. They listen, they respond, and they begin working. Zechariah is going to speak to the heart behind that obedience. Yes, the people need to begin working and rebuilding the temple, but Zechariah is going to deal with the fact that their hearts are what should draw them toward obedience. God does not want a building for building's sake. Yes, the temple is a critical part of who they are. It is an essential part of God's glory dwelling among his people. But Zechariah is going to remind them that obedience starts in the heart and not in what the hands do. And more than that, as you back up and you look at Zechariah as a whole, what he does is he drives the people forward in their understanding of some very critical things. The first of those is the Messiah. Zechariah takes what other prophets, major and minor prophets, have written about the coming Messiah, and he gives it again further depth and further detail than we've seen before. And he also reminds the people that God remembers his promises because God has made some remarkably specific promises to these people. He has promised them a redeemer and he'll be faithful, but he's also promised them that he is going to fill the temple in some sense with a glory that was beyond even what Solomon's temple had. He's promised his people that he's going to redeem them that he's going to purify them He's promised that he's going to restore them He's promised that he's going to set them at a place of prominence among the nations And he's promised that he himself will rule not only over israel, but over all of the people And as you move through the book of zechariah, you see that god intends to fulfill each and every one of those promises Which is why zechariah is actually one of the most commonly quoted books in the new testament 71 times there are either direct quotes or very, very clear allusions and references to what Zechariah writes. And if Zechariah wrote concerning the Messiah and concerning God's ultimate future plans for his people, where would you think those quotes would be most concentrated? We read Run from James today, and there's certainly some there, but as you read through what you find, it's 27 times in the Gospels Zechariah is referred to. A huge amount of material that comes that speaks of the life and the ministry of Jesus the Messiah even more than that, 31 times in the book of Revelation, Zechariah is directly drawn from. He writes about the coming king, and he writes about this king's coming kingdom. And so we're going to see how that plays out as we move through this wonderful book together. Now, a lot of that is pretty straightforward and agreed on. The timing's clear, the author's clear, the major themes pretty clear, almost universal agreement as to what those things are where there's a lot of disagreement is in how we understand the specifics of Zechariah. It it is widely acknowledged uh, that Zechariah is not only a critically important book, but that it is a potentially very difficult book. Many people call it the most difficult book, not only in the Old Testament, but in the entire Bible, uh, usually kind of right on par with places like Ezekiel with weird things. And that brings us to the reality that there are good and godly people, brothers and sisters in Christ, who come to different conclusions on things. Uh, And I want to take a few minutes to talk about the basic strategy that we're going to use to go through some of those potential hiccups in this book. Uh, This is not exhaustive. This is certainly not meant to be combative. This is simply meant to lay a foundation for how we are going to understand and interpret the various parts and pieces of this book that tend to uh, bring division of opinion. So uh, the first strategy that we're going to work through deals with interpreting pictures. There are all kinds of language in the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, you find a variety of styles and themes of writing. Uh, You have narrative sections, sections that are story, that have character and plot and dialogue and movement. Uh, You have poetry uh, and particularly Hebrew poetry, huge portions of your Old Testament Hebrew poetry that's not marked out necessarily by rhyme and meter like in our kind of poetry, but the idea of repetition and building and and language that's used. And then you have big chunks of your Bible that are prophetic, and sometimes those prophetic words are pretty direct. This will happen at this time. Sometimes those prophetic words are a little bit more obscure. Sometimes God tells a guy like Ezekiel to build a little Lego city. It's not a Lego city, but a little model of the city and to lay down on your side to picture the seeds that's going to come against it. That's odd. And sometimes God gives his prophets visions, these prophetic pictures of what is happening to illustrate kind of the spiritual condition of the people. And Zechariah opens immediately following this week with eight of those visions And some of them are fairly easy to get, but flip with me really quick to chapter five. These aren't the first two, but I gotta tell you, they're a couple of my favorites. Chapter five, verse one. He says, again I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and it's width 10 cubits. It's a 30 foot by 15 foot scroll flying through the air. And it gets better or different. Chapter 5, verse 5, Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. I said, What is it? He said, This is the basket that's going out. And he said, This is the iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. You have a flying scroll, a huge flying scroll, and a woman trapped in a basket. What do you do with that? there are wide-ranging opinions on what that is. Everything from uh, the Antichrist to a nuclear missile, which is one of the interpretations of the Flying Scroll, uh, to uh, people that just won't touch it because they have no idea what to do with it. So what do we do when there are odd images? Uh, The answer is not super exciting, but it is very consistent. The answer is look at the context. God we are going to operate with the presupposition that God does not give us pictures to confuse his people That God does not give mystery for the sake of mystery But that God gives pictures to reveal truth so that we might have Understanding either about him or about sin or about his promises But that God gives us these things so that we might grasp his truth in a unique way And as you read through the context of these visions Most often they are made very, very clear. The flying scroll is a curse that is going out over the land. The woman in the basket is the picture of wickedness. We do not have to resort to kind of fanciful interpretations on these things to figure out what we are. So we're going to move through this again with the intention and the understanding that when God speaks, he wants people to understand. And not only do we look at the the particular context of the book itself, but we remember that God has given this prophecy in a cultural context. When Zechariah writes, he's writing to a people that have returned from captivity in Babylon. That matters. This is after a significant judgment of God and a portion of the return. He is writing after men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, he is writing to a people who have an understanding of the prophetic writings that have come before. So he's not writing in a vacuum where we have to just kind of interpret these things all on their own. He is writing these things in a literary context and then in a cultural context that give an awful lot of clarity where we would tend to see mystery. And that actually brings us to the second thing that we need to interpret, and that's the idea of uh, interpreting various places. There are some key place names mentioned in this book. One of those being the city of Jerusalem. Almost 40 times in these 14 chapters, you have God mention Jerusalem through his prophet. And when he speaks of Jerusalem, he is talking about the physical city that is the center of politics and worship for his people. When Zechariah says Jerusalem, in the minds of his audience, it calls to memory very specific things, a specific place, specific promises. It is not a mysterious spiritual reference. It is something tangible and something very, very understandable to the people. And kind of tied right along with that is the idea of Zion. Zion is mentioned nine times in the book. And Zion has a couple of different references. We've seen it in the Minor Prophets. Sometimes Zion refers to Jerusalem as a whole. Sometimes Zion refers to a specific part of Jerusalem, most specifically the Temple Mount. But again... When God's people hear Jerusalem and Zion, they do not think of uh, kind of fuzzy spiritual images. When they hear Jerusalem and Zion, they think of a tangible, real, touchable, physical place. And so we're going to assume that along with the original audience, God had those things in his intent when he mentioned them. We also have to talk about the temple. The temple is mentioned 20 times in this book, either through the name, the temple, or by being called the house of the Lord. And it can get a little bit confusing because sometimes it's very clear that the temple that Zechariah is talking about is the work in progress that is happening as he writes to these people. But sometimes he talks about a temple that doesn't seem anything like the one that they're building. And we have to determine, when he's talking about a temple, does he still mean the temple? The temple. And once again, we're going to assume that as he is speaking and using terms that his audience understood, that he's referring to an actual physical building. The temple was the place where the glory of God dwelt among his people. And even as we read through the New Testament, there's no reason to reframe or reorient or reinterpret those things to fit some kind of other understanding. So Jerusalem will mean Jerusalem. Zion will mean Zion. The temple will mean the temple, and that leads us to the last thing that we need to think through, and that's how do we interpret references to certain people. There's some very familiar names in the book. Joshua, still the high priest, functioning as the high priest. He will be used to picture a coming priest, but when he talks about Joshua, he's talking about the actual person, Joshua. He's going to give us the first kind of detailed look at someone called Branch. There's a reference in Zechariah to branch. And if we just had what we had in Zechariah, we would know some things. But remember, since we're dealing with this in the context of other minor prophets, we're going to get to go back to Isaiah, back to Jeremiah, to see what they've told us about this branch. And it becomes very, very clear that the branch is a reference to the Messiah who is to come. Not only who he is, but what he will be like and what he will do. And as we go through the book, there's going to be references to various houses of people. There's the house of Israel. There's the house of Judah. There's the house of Levi. There's the house of David. There's the house of Nathan. And again, commentators have lots of opinions on what that means, many of them tied into the people of God being the church in this present age referred to back here in the mm-hmm. prophets. And I want to submit that while uh, I understand that perspective, when God mentions a house of people, it Consistently means the physical descendants of that house. Why would God talk about the house of Israel and the house of Judah other than to identify the ethnic people of Israel, and not only to identify the ethnic people of Israel, but to highlight the fact that they were divided when they never should have been? It's a pointed commentary when God says there are differing houses among his people, which is why when Ezekiel writes about their coming together again, it's so pointed and powerful. And so we're going to, again, assume that when God references people, he's speaking of those physical people. And again, I know that there are different opinions on that, and that is okay. Uh, It doesn't mean we have to break fellowship, but it does matter with how we interpret some of the prophecies, and particularly the timing of the prophecies as we go through this book. And we'll, we'll dig into that as we come through it in the context. And with all of that kind of laid as the foundation, let's open up chapter 1, and I do want to very briefly look at this sermon that is in verses 2 through 6. This sermon is really a summary for everything that comes after this in the book. These five verses, verses 2 through 6, they set the foundation for everything else. Without these, none of the rest of this kind of makes sense. And Zechariah opens up this summary with a particular problem verse 2 he says the Lord was very angry with your fathers and even though that sounds harsh that's actually a pretty mild way to say it in our English translations it's anger begins and ends that sentence it's something more like angry was the Lord with your fathers with great anger lots of anger wrapped up in there and we've seen that we've seen it play out in the minor prophets God's anger directed at his sinful rebellious people God calls them God warns them, God disciplines them, but they refuse to return. But why is that a problem for this current generation? The answer is because they have the tendency toward the same rebellion. And God says, look at your fathers and don't do the same thing. Their problem is inherent to you and your generation as well. That's why he picks up in verse 4. He says, do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds but they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. He says, do not be like the people who came before. Don't exhibit the same hardness. Don't exhibit the same rebellion. But why does he have to say that? After all, we just came through the book of Haggai, which said that when these people were confronted with their sin, with their messed up priorities, that they repented. Haggai preaches. Three weeks later, they start rebuilding the temple, and that's good news. And the temple is important. But again, Zechariah is going to hit the heart motive. He is going to remind them that rebuilding the temple is not the end-all be-all for what they've called to do because there would be a temptation even toward external obedience, right? If crops are bad and if the enemies are at the gate and God says build the temple, well, maybe if we just build the temple, then everything will be okay, right? Things are bad. God says do the things. We'll do the things so that things will be good, And Zechariah is going to remind them that obedience is always drawn out of a heart that knows who God is and responds to who God is. The problem with their fathers was not that they completely stopped worshiping, right? The problem with their fathers was that they would worship God at the same time that they worshiped idols. They would carry on the feasts and the festivals and the sacrifices at the same time that they were pillaging, plundering, and murdering their brothers in their greed. The problem wasn't that they completely stopped obeying. The problem was that they had no heart toward God, and he's going to call them back to that. Do not be like your fathers, because he is going to give them some wonderful promises in this. He is going to speak of a national restoration that is unlike anything they'd experienced or anything they could imagine, but that restoration does not come upon wicked, rebellious people. There is nothing magical about the Jewish DNA that demands God's blessing. They will experience God's blessing and restoration when they demonstrate heart change and repentance. So that warning does give way to those precious promises, though. There is a really tender promise here. Look back at verse 3. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. My hope is that you see that when something is repeated three times in one verse, it's pretty important. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. God is reminding his people of something critically important there. First of all, he is giving his name there, Yahweh, 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 Lord of hosts. This is not just the God who is distant and far off. This is the God who has entered into covenant relationship with them. The God who has revealed his eternal, everlasting, covenant-keeping name to his people. And he is the Lord of hosts. A God of unthinkable, unimaginable, unapproachable power. And so even in that phrase, as he tells them, Thus says Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. It's a God who is infinitely powerful and at the very same time is intimately related to his people. And what does that great and close God say to them? Return to me and I will return to you. That God that they had sinned against and offended calls them back. Remember, if there's distance in their relationship... If there is a break in fellowship between God and his people, it is entirely one-sided. It is their sin that has broken the relationship. It is their rebellion that's broken fellowship with God. And yet, God stands ready to return to his people. It's very similar to that picture of the father in the parable of the prodigal son. It was the son who ran. It was the son who sinned, but it was the father who stood waiting for his return. That's the picture that God gives. He says, the moment you turn, the moment you repent, I stand ready to return to you. It's just that beautiful reminder that God disciplines his people in their sin, but that he doesn't discipline them to destroy them, that their sin doesn't separate them from relationship with him. It It doesn't nullify all the promises that he made. Sin brings terrible consequences, but god doesn't reject or hate his wandering people he faithfully and patiently and lovingly calls them back and when they do come back they find that he's there that's why we read out of james at the beginning of this morning not because we're israel but because we worship the same god the same faithful covenant keeping beckoning god james writes to professing believers why are there causes? What is the cause of quarrels and fights among you? Why is it that you don't know anything but dissension? It's because you chase after your lusts, and when you don't get what you want, you kill for it. You don't have because you don't ask. When you ask, you don't get it because you ask with all these wrong motives. And yet, in the middle of that, in the middle of the mess your sin has made, James says, But draw near to the Lord, and he will draw near to you. His God is not the God who is far off. He's the God who is ready to forgive and redeem and restore his people. Because the humility that brings repentance and the repentance that brings blessing was true for Israel, and that same pattern is true for God now, which makes sense if he is an unchanging God from everlasting to everlasting. And as he goes on, he kind of concludes his sermon by asking very pointed questions to offer some proof. He asks them painful things that prove the truth of what he's saying. He says, don't be like your fathers. They heard the warnings. They saw the judgments, but they refused to change. But now look at verse 5. Your fathers, where are they? What's the answer to that question? Dead. Where did the path that your fathers walked lead them? They're dead. Many of them starved to death inside Jerusalem during that last siege under horrible, unspeakable conditions. Many of them died fighting against a Babylonian army that God had called up to deal with his people. Many of them died as the Babylonians rushed in and conquered and destroyed Jerusalem. And the ones that survived that horror likely died in exile. Where are your fathers, Israel? They're dead. And their death was marked by the path of their rebellion and disobedience okay and he goes on and the prophets do they live forever and the people are going to have to say no the prophets don't live forever isaiah and jeremiah they're dead and gone even in their obedience they perished and you know what Uh, if the people were going to be really honest they would have to admit that the prophets that weren't just ignored well their father's actually killed Some of the prophets didn't survive because the people had no tolerance for the message they were preaching. So God asks the hard questions. Look back at your history. Where has it gotten you? Death, violence, rejection. But what doesn't die? Verse 6. But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? Your fathers died... My prophets died, but my words didn't. Every word, every promise, every command came to pass exactly like the prophets said he would. And the the phrasing that he uses there is graphic, and it's pointed. He doesn't just say that his words and statutes came to pass. He says, the words and the statutes which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your father's? Didn't my words chase down and overcome your fathers, try as they might to escape them? And wasn't that the history of Israel, them running from God's warnings, them running from God's promises? And for a while, didn't it look like they might have succeeded? God warns and he warns and he warns. He disciplines and he disciplines, but nothing truly tragic ever really seems to happen, right? And the people were utterly convinced that they were safe. Uh, We are the chosen people of God. So in some sense, they saw themselves as untouchable. Jerusalem is the chosen city of God, and so in some senses, they saw it as untouchable. The temple is the place where the glory of God dwells, and so of course, it's untouchable. And what does God say? Look back. Didn't every word eventually overcome them? When it looked like they'd escape, ultimately it brought them to destruction. See, you can't hide from the power and the perfect faithfulness of God, but what's the other side of that promise? If the judgments eventually overtook them, Then won't the promises eventually overtake them as well? If God is perfectly faithful in His justice and His discipline, then is He not perfectly faithful in His mercy and His in His restoration? See, Zechariah calls the people and He says, "If you will avoid the sins of your fathers, if you will only listen, if you will only obey, if you will only turn to God, then you're going to find that just like your fathers couldn't outrun His discipline." You won't be able to outrun his blessing. And I want to conclude today the same way that Zechariah concluded his sermon. And that's to look at and kind of consider what the right response to all of this is. The people receive a, a warning and a promise. And there really is only one right response to that, and that's in the last part of verse 6. So they repented. They said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. There's a humility that's demanded when you say that God is right in everything. It requires humility to say that in his anger, God was right. In his discipline, God was right. Those things make sense, don't they? When the people were sinful and rebellious, For God to respond in justice and even wrath, it makes sense. It's logical. It flows. And God was right. The only thing that actually doesn't make sense is the fact that God is still standing there waiting for them to return. The justice of God makes sense. The wrath of God makes sense. The mercy of God doesn't make sense. It's this wonderful, beautiful kindness that He maintains covenant faithfulness to His people and we need that same reminder because we need the same warning even though we are god's people restored to him our right standing guaranteed through the work of christ if we're honest we understand that our work of repentance is never done that there's the constant work of putting sin to death in our life that is a constant cycle of recognizing our sin calling it what it is repenting and being restored to God. And we are also a people that need to hear that same prayer at the end of Psalm 139. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. That, that prayer never runs out of impact. It never becomes less important in the life of the believer. But we also need the reminder that God waits that our loving father stands ready to forgive that he promises to exalt and restore the humble that he's perfectly faithful even when we're not great quote in one of my commentaries that i was reading through prepping this week commentary by charles feinberg and he says this he says prophecy presupposes sin failure and god's judgment but our god is not content to rest there he causes the evil to be overruled for the lasting good I thought it was a great reminder that God does not promise things. God does not prophesy things and then sit back and say, man, I hope they're faithful so I can do what I said I would do. God didn't make promises to Israel wondering whether they would be faithful so that he could fulfill them. He doesn't make promises to you and I wondering if we can somehow maintain our grasp on faith so that he can bring them to a conclusion. That God makes prophecies and promises knowing human sinfulness. And in his sovereign, unimaginable, all-encompassing power, he overcomes even human failure and uses it for good. For our good. For his glory. That's a remarkable God that we serve. Will you pray with me? Lord, we're reminded over and over through Scripture that sin is serious, that it's not an inconvenience, it's not a habit, it's not an excusable mishap, Lord, that sin, sin is a raging rebellion against the holy God who made us. And yet, Lord, you made a way for ruined sinners to be returned, to be restored, to be redeemed to right relationship with you through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the body that was prepared, not a symbolic act but Lord the real death of the son of God crucified for sinners Lord we rejoice in the fact that you are faithful when we are not that you are good when we are not and that you have covered us in the righteousness of Christ we pray come quickly Lord Jesus amen